Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 73. It's February 28th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. It is a Friday. It is the Friday of Labor Weekend. We are recording from a Marriott in Clearwater, I think. I, I hope. I, I don't really know where I am, to be completely honest. It's sort of this little island, and it's not actually an island, so that makes it... America's butthole. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's rude. People are from here, and they like it. I don't know. Uh, it's The beaches are nice, and Dunedin, downtown Dunedin, was great. The brewery there, and St. Pete. Last night, I went out on the town, and uh, you'll hear a little bit more about it in Beer of the Month at the end of the uh, end of the program, uh, but uh, right where we are, not my favorite place. No, same here. I think we're just kind of in between a few good yeah, towns. Exactly. We'll make our way around uh, in the next uh, few days. Uh, if you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take the time to do that. We'd greatly appreciate it. And if you're listening to the show for the first time, you can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. So we're going to talk about draft strategy on this episode. It seems prudent to do that since the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational started up this week. Uh, you know, you just knocked out an online championship league with the NFBC while you were down here in Florida. So we're going to talk about some different things like KDS and how to build your team and how to plan for the amount of streaming that you're probably going to have to do uh, in a smaller mixed league like that. Obviously, the streaming concepts apply to 15-team leagues as well. But I think one of the key differences between a 12 and a 15 is being willing to turn over maybe even the bottom half of your roster, not being too glued to the players that you invested in on draft day. So uh, as you kind of get ready for a draft for the NFBC and for a lot of formats, you get to actually set up your draft preferences. Uh, KDS is Kentucky Derby style. It is. Oh, the, I did not know what that stood for. That's what it stands for. Yeah, so you, you, uh, you should, like, I think in the Kentucky Derby, you rank your gate priority and then it's a lottery to see which gate you get because certain uh-huh. gates are a little better than others. Anyway, same kind of thing for our draft position. You rank all the draft positions the system draws a name and you get your highest available draft position. Previously, I think you mentioned that you were okay with just going 1 to 12 or 1 to 15, but it kind of sounds like your mentality about that has changed. Yeah, you know, I did a very simple analysis where I just added up that projected auction values for 1 and 30 and 2 and 29 and uh, did, I, did I do that right? Is it 1 and 31? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. The first two picks. I added up all the first two picks for everybody, and um, and they were within a dollar of each other. There, and in fact, there was like, you know, sort of third or fourth, there was like 6430 was the peak uh, value for the first two, and then the, the bottom value was like 6320. So I was just like, this doesn't matter. You know, people, like, we're not, we're not, we don't know things down to 80 cents. You know, <laughs> like, like, this doesn't matter. But um, then I uh, had an online conversation with Ariel Cohen, uh, who reminded me of a piece that once I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And what he did was just look at all of the NF- NF- NFBC teams um, that he could find. He had a pretty good sample and what he found was just generally winners and top finishers came from the middle and i think that the theory was what we we talked about it was that you can adjust you can adjust to runs you can adjust to draft better you're not waiting 30 picks basically or whatever it is my i can't do math right now anyway um, so uh, I think he might be right. And uh, another way, and I know this is just anecdotal because, uh, 
you know, I, we're just in draft season and I can refer to an actual draft that I'm doing. But I got the 14th pick because I just, you know, put out there sort of 1 through 15 as my KDS. I got the 14th pick and um, I've already sort of run into some issues, I think, where just so much happens between picks that I feel a little bit alone on an island. I feel a little bit like I can't, um, I can't adjust. I can't, you know, I don't like, I don't know what to do. Um, and so, uh, uh, or I just, I feel helpless. Like I'll just have a cue and it just gets decimated because I'm just waiting so long. So, um, I think that might be right. I think there might be something to it where I think my real priority, I think I'd still want one because I, I from everywhere I look, Trout is like worth like three or four dollars more than the second best players in the game. Um, and so I really want to um, either have one or maybe something like, and then five through, you know, five through 10 in the middle. Um, and then maybe take 15 because there is some value to two in a row. Uh, and then fill in the rest, I think. That'd be my ideal KDS, I think. I think I'm a little bit less math-driven in my approach to KDS. I think I look at it where if you look at recent drafts that are the same style, so if you're going to play main, look at a 15-team ADP report from NFBC. If you're going to play online championship, look at 12s. Start to map out some of your options through the first four to five rounds. Like Look at different foundations that you could realistically build and run through the exercise from all different positions, kind of an early, a middle, and a late, I think you might find that your strategy, based on the players you like, actually changes where you want to be in the draft order in any given year because of where certain clusters of players tend to go. Now, things can unravel quickly. Any room can be unique enough to just totally break ADP and you're left scrambling, so a lot of that comes back to just being prepared, having your homework done, and just being flexible with what you do. But I'm drafting from the five spot in TGFBI, and that was pretty low in my priority list, so it's kind of interesting that I ended up in a spot that that you think is pretty desirable, and it's turned out to be just fine. I ended up taking bets in the first, sale in the second, before we knew he was going to miss opening day, but it's pneumonia. It's not an arm problem, so it's probably not going to be a lengthy absence. Javier Baez was there for me in the third, Machado in the fourth, Rizzo in the fifth, and Tommy Pham in the sixth. I'm light on pitching with that foundation, but I think you can map it out about that far and say, you know what, when I'm in the eighth position, I like being there because I'm not as vulnerable to starting pitcher runs or speed runs or later on maybe closer runs. I mean, in leagues with no trading especially, you have to be really good at, at knowing when those are going to happen, especially if you're on an end. Because if you have the wheel, you make back-to-back picks at 12 or back-to-back picks at 15, and something runs off the board in the 20-plus picks that are going to happen before your next one, you're kind of up a creek without a paddle. That can definitely happen, too. So like that, that I can I can think of a couple places in my draft where it's already happened. So uh, I, I went Arenado first at 14 in, in mine, and Bueller uh, around the horn. And the reason I did that was I identified what I thought five starting pitchers that were cut above everybody else and didn't really have question marks and were worth being sort of first or second round pitchers. 
And I thought Bueller was on that list, and I wasn't sure that people after him would be. So I thought, I'm going to get Bueller, and then I'll just peace out on pitching for a little bit uh, and get a bunch of hitters. That ended up being what I did. But because I chose Bueller in the second, and because I'm a little bit worried about the second base pool this year, right after that, in the next 30 picks, Albies, Torres, Cattell Marte, and Jose Altuve went. And... Even though, like, it might have been too, it would have been, it would have been too early to take any of those four second basemen, you know, at 16, at 17. <laughs> I'm really good at math today. You're, yeah, uh, you're a player. Yeah, so uh, it would have been, I think, you know, it would have been too early to take any of those second basemen at 17. All of a sudden, the top second basemen are off the board. I, I, we've talked about how I don't like Jonathan VR here. So all of a sudden, I have a choice when I come, when it comes back to me, what to do about second is already in my head. I've only and and so I already feel like wow how did I get how did this draft get so crappy on me so quick you know and it's funny because everybody goes on Twitter and they feel like this is amazing I'm doing the best uh, you know this is look, look at my lovely team I'm so in love with it I was already after two picks being like what the crap <laughs> like what is happening so I felt George Springer felt uh, fell too far when I got back into the third. Um, but I was already thinking about second base, and I knew that Team 15 didn't have a pitcher, and he went Clevenger Nola, and I, I kind of expected that. I didn't expect necessarily those two pitchers, but like I expected a two-pitcher turn, which is what he did. And then I went Keston Hura in the fourth round, which may be a reach by values. He was sort of in there, but I knew he wouldn't come back to me. Right. And one thing I also am thinking about, um, and this is sort of TGFBI specific, but also NFBC, is that uh, there is a, a league crown in these types. And I don't know how many other people play in these types of situations, but there is a league crown and then there's an overall crown. And if you want the overall crown, you need a lot of things to go right. Beyond just the kind of stuff that wins you games, wins you leagues, you need all your young players to pop. You need like... You need all your pitchers to pop. And and so I thought going in, I'm going to be kind of an upside drafter in this one. Uh, I did end up with Springer and Goldschmidt, who are a little bit more, you know, veteran, you know, maybe more downside than I wanted. But Hero for me was like, I, it's, I don't know if this is a reach. But it might be a little bit early to be taking a player that you sort of, I like that guy and I want him. Uh, but in the fourth round there, I was like, I don't really want to be in the Muncie Moustakis group. And Kevin Bijou on a batting average league, as much as I like him, I don't want to depend on him. So I'd already sort of been like, you know, it's going to be Hira. And so I, I maybe I got forced into that by being in the 14. Or maybe it was just overreacting to the second base pool. Or maybe it's a good pick. I don't know. What do you think? I think Hira is a pretty good pick. He went in the 3-4 turn of my draft. So the team in the 15th position took him with the second of their, their two picks. And I was in the 14 and I took him with the second one. I yeah. took him the same turn. I think... Here's why it makes sense. It's more of a game theory thing. That team started with Nolan Arenado. Uh-huh. You started with Nolan Arenado. I've talked about my concerns about Fernando Tatis Jr. Not that I don't think he's a good player, but that I think you can build a more stable foundation without him and still get that high variance, to still get that upside, to still uh-huh. get the potential for more than what you paid for from other players. I'm more comfortable doing that starting at the 3-4 turn. I think in the first two rounds especially, you just don't want to screw it up. Like If you have to pick a lane between being aggressive or being conservative in the first two rounds, being conservative early makes sense, and starting to open it up and take shots where appropriate makes a lot of sense. We've talked about Hira as a player who's probably going to cut the K rate in this first full season. Last season was a partial like two-thirds sort of year, but... The K yeah, rate his batting average down. inflated versus his K rate last year, but he can improve the K rate 
and and still have a decent batting average. Like that's sort of what I think is going to happen. Right. He can offset some of the flukiness that happened last with year improved. with basic skills gains that are yeah. reasonably easy to project for him. Because in the minor leagues, he had like 18% strikeout rates and stuff. He didn't have this, this big 30. And I don't think that just because he had 30 in his rookie season means he's going to have a 30 again. But I think the thing that you, you hit on a little bit was that you knew he wasn't going to come back to you. And you felt like there was a pretty big drop in value at the position, especially whereas the depth at other positions was so good that you weren't really giving a lot up. You could wait at third base or first base or outfield or other spots. But guess what happened? There was another run in the next 30, and it was on speed. Victor Robles, Tommy Pham, Ramon Laureano, Whit Merrifield, Luis Robert, VR, I don't know, Bichette. You know, there was a lot of speed went in 4-5, right? And again, I'm on the outside being like, you know, okay, so far I have like 15 to 20 stolen bases between Hero and Springer, you know, like that's it. And they just, all the kind of 20s and 30s just went. And so already in my head, I'm like, ah, stolen bases, which I think, to be fair, everyone this year is kind of like, where am I getting the stolen bases from? And so on my next pick, I took Anderson and Goldschmidt, you know, hoping for 15 to 20 again, right? And so my general strategy in a lot of leagues has been 15 and 20 to death. Just get a bunch of guys 15 and 20, try to get a bunch of them and add up. But in my NFBC online championship, I had that same strategy, uh, and I ended up with, uh, we counted up, maybe 80 steals plus Kyle Tucker uh, on the bench. And that's going to be a 12-team league, so they're going to expect maybe 120 stolen bases to be above average, you know? That would be, yeah, that'd be above average, because we were looking at the TGFBI league I was in last year, and 120 would have been more like top three in that league in a 15-team league. So you're going to need more I might be last in steals. You might be. And I did the 15 and 20 strategy. So that's getting in my head on TGFBI now. (laughs) And so what did I do? And this is a little bit jumping down further in the draft. What did I do just now? I made a big boo-boo. I made a mistake. I picked Malik Smith. Oh, yeah. You you will only regret that. I mean, we've talked about him as one of those bad speed sources where job loss is a concern. Uh, the lack of power is a major concern. The fact that he could be a nine hitter in a bad lineup in the AL that drives down the runs. I mean, there's... Oh, God. It's... He doesn't show up well on the auction calculator because overall, when you add it all up, it's not worth it. But it was a category play for me. Uh, we're talking the 12th round now. And I got an attaboy in the draft room and was like, uh, oh, no. I don't know, man. That's not what I feel good about. Uh, and then here's the, the way I'm going to mitigate it. I'm going to hope that I get 20 or 30 stolen bases before he loses his job. I'm going to 15 and 20 this position to death still after this. I've got a queue uh, full of, and I can't state their names, I guess, but I've got a queue full of guys who are going to steal 10 to 15 that I'm still going to pick. Uh, going forward, I, I I built a good power base with Paul Goldschmidt, Wilson Contreras, Keston Hero, Tim Anderson, Nolan Arenado, George Springer, Michael Conforto. So I feel like, hey, I've got the power to take this shot, and I'm going to do some 15-15 guys going forward. I'm going to try and get a lot of stolen bases, and you know maybe it won't hurt so much when Malik Smith uh, loses his job because we're just sort of assuming it. And by the way, I think this does uh, sort of a, uh, there's an associated. Uh, group of sleepers 
that because of Malik Smith are interesting. Kyle Lewis beats the snot out of the ball. His, his strikeout rate is bad, but he beats the snot out of the ball. And Jake Fraley um, is kind of an okay all-around guy. Uh, that can kind of do a lot of uh, a lot of everything and might be kind of like a 15-15 guy uh, in center. So, you know, I think that's associated with that, and maybe I'll do something about that at the very end of the draft and try to, you know, cover my investment a little bit. Um, but, you know, I think both of these things that happened kind of had a little bit to do with the shape of a draft. And I don't, you know, the pitching for me, I actually feel pretty good about this ace and take a while off because my pitching is Bueller, Soroka, Ken Giles, and Jesus, Jesus Lazardo. So if I've got the Jesus Lizard and Walker Bueller, like, I feel like, you know, I'm, I've got a good staff. I feel really good about it. Even though it's only four pitchers, like, you know, they're all really good. Um, and I think I can keep doing that. So... Overall, I guess I, I feel okay about it, but, you know, already a little bit of a wobble in the draft, you know, starting in pick two, you know, and uh, normally you want to feel like, you know, I think for the first four or five rounds, I think you want to feel like you're just taking the best players, you know, and then you'll figure it out later. That's mostly how I felt. There was only one spot early where I had to do something that seemed a little bit against the grain with regard to how I've got players ranked for this season, and that was the sale pick in round two. And I think when you're near an end but not on the end you do have to pay close attention to the people next to you you might not have the luxury of knowing their tendencies but you can look at the grid and see what they did first and now coming through the second round obviously the four people who picked ahead of me they all had hitters so i knew that coming back through with their second and third round picks they're gonna want to they were gonna get a pitcher yeah. and three of the four owners did take a picture a pitcher one skipped uh pitchers entirely so I just I said, yeah, I got to take Sale here if I definitely want to lock him in. And the hitters coming back are going to be fine. There's going to be a Javi Baez, a Xander Bogarts, uh, an Alberto Mondesi if I want to chase speed or a Springer. There and who did you miss out on hitting-wise? You missed out on Gleyber Torres. Yeah, the hitters that went between those two turns. So I took Ozzie Sale. Albies. Judge went, Torres went, Altuve, Pete Alonzo, and Ozzy Albies. I do like Albies quite a bit. I, I think he was one of the guys that if he'd fallen there, Albies versus Baez would have been a really tough call for me yeah, yeah. Uh, because of the second base depth concerns and because if I had passed on Baez, that would have left me some options later that I really like. Carlos Correa, Corey Seager. We talked about it in the shortstop yeah. breakdown. There's so many players kind of in that 100 to 150 range at shortstop that you're perfectly content to use as your regular shortstop, and there's so much depth you can go – MI and UT with shortstops this year too, which is something that, frankly, I just never thought I would say. But that was the game theory thing that I had to decide on that I really hadn't thought about prior to being in the TGFBI. I was like, okay, how much am I willing to push sale based on how I feel about him compared to Bieber and Snell and Strasburg since there were already, there were six starting pitchers off the board when I came up with my pick in round two. Yeah, so in my online championship, uh, I, I thought there was another thing that, that stuck out for me. Uh, this is a this is the league where I'm not sure I have enough stolen bases. And for my speed, I have Altuve, Tim Anderson, uh, Ed, Eddie Rosario might steal five. I'm going to mention him. Uh, Kyle Tucker again. Uh, Brian Reynolds might steal five. Colton Wong, um, Harrison Bader, and that's about it. And so that's not enough steals. And... Uh, I'm just going to have to uh, think about it. I want to say two things about this draft, though. So, Jose Atube, I took him. And I took him in the fourth round. That's cheap. As the third stolen base, uh, the third, third second baseman off the, off, the, uh, off the floor. So, I felt like, okay, 
you know, uh, if you're going to let the uh, who, who supposedly is the first uh, by projections, we talked about why we might not buy the um, stone base projections, but who's supposedly a twenty dollar player. I've taken Soto, Arenado, Jordan Alvarez. I need to take some speed, and I'm like it's a little bit early for Cattell Marte, and I, you know, Victor Robles. I don't, I'm not that big into him because of the bad ball stats are pretty bad. Um, so, you know, I was like, sure, I'm going to take it. And there have I've had some conversations online with people who were saying his sprint speed, especially in the first ten feet, was still elite, and you know they think he's going to steal bases. So, you know, this is the kind of thing when a twelve team where I'm like, okay. If Altuve steals 20 this year, I'm in a lot better position, you know, and and then I'm only a few stolen base. And, and Tucker plays. I'm in a lot better position. But someone also commented that they didn't think that I did a good bench strategy in this 12-teamer. Um, and it's fair because my bench right now is Kyle Tucker, is Michael Kopech, Kyle Tucker, J.D. Davis, James Paxton, Nathan Eovaldi, Mitch Hanniger, and Austin Voth. Now, if you're counting along at home, that's Kopech. Paxton and Hanniger at the very least, and maybe Davis. That's four players on my bench that are hurt mm-hmm. um, or coming back from being hurt or not playing to begin the season. And he was saying, like, you need to be flexible. You need to be churning in a 12-team. And I understand that, but I am not married to Nate Eovaldi. I am not married to Austin Voth. There are guys in my lineup right now, like Spencer Totenbull and Sandy Alcantara and Ryan Helsley, that may end up just being early streamers, uh, people that I have early and don't hold on too long, people that I get rid of when I see a better matchup somewhere. So I, I think I sort of baked this in. Like, I wanted ceiling, you know? So Paxton, you know, is already throwing, and he might be back in April, and so that's worth the ceiling for me. If, if I don't end up holding on to something like Mitch Hanniger, it's I'm not going to cry about it. Like, you know, he's not probably going to solve my stolen base situation. So, um, you know, I think that I still have the same flexibility. Uh, I'm just going to try and start with the churning with Eovaldi and Voth, you know, rather than try and start with Paxton. And if I get to the point where I have to drop Hanniger, I have to drop Hanniger. I mean, we're still four weeks away from opening day. The first week of the season's a partial week. Fab runs on that Sunday. I think it's fine to have players that you think hey you know if ryan helsley wins the cardinals fifth starter job or if he's their closer i caught lightning in a bottle if he doesn't he's he's, he's, the, he's the first guy off my roster yeah, exactly hanniger too like we don't really know much about his recovery right now so it, it's okay to take those chances i think the discipline required to be a good player in shallow leagues is cutting them loose like not thinking about what's going to happen when they come back, but saying they're not ready, they don't have the role right now, I need someone getting starts, I need someone getting playing time, and just being willing to let them go, knowing that you do have a shot to get them back later in fab once they're mm-hmm. healthy, and if someone else gets them, you know, so be it. There's going to be other players that come by in a 12-team league that are good. And J.D. Davis is cuttable, right? Like, if he has a shoulder injury and he's out a month, like, he's just cuttable, man. I don't have to I don't have to be sad about it. He's not going to, again, he's not going to solve my stone base situation. And I think uh, you can do a little bit of stone base streaming. I made a little uh, reference to that. The Mets, for example, have Wilson Ramos behind the plate and Noah Syndergaard, who's given up, like, 35 steals a year. And this guy, like, just does not keep guys on base and so the combination of that makes it fairly easy to say oh look Washington's playing uh, you know the Mets early on if uh, you know in a 12 team guys like uh, Castro 
or uh, it's Drupal Cabrera who don't steal a lot of bases when you sum it all up. They're, if they get five stolen bases this year, then three of them might have been because of Mets. You know what I mean? Like, so like there's some opportunity to kind of stream uh, for, for category needs and 12-teamers and just generally churn, churn your roster and, and be hunting that U-word. Uh, because it's a 12-teamer. Like, you just, uh, like... And that's why, one of the reasons I don't like it as much. You know, because the pressure's so hard on getting stars in a start. Like, the league is all star... All, they're all great players. You know, I'd rather... I'd rather... Uh, they're all relevant to me rather than just the top X percent, you know? And uh, and so, you know, it's a little bit... It is a little bit harder for me sometimes to, to win in these 12-teamers where I'm like, why? I have to cut this decent player because I think that this other player might be better you know it's a kind of i'd rather um kind of be like spot a guy who's a starter who no one else thought was a starter like anthony like picking out like knowing anthony discafani was going to be a, a fine major league starter when a lot of prognosticators said he wouldn't be that gives me juice you know <laughs> he's not amazing he's not amazing i'm not telling you that he's a star but he's a starter you know I was thinking about this after listening to some podcasts on the way here. I was listening to Sleeper in the Bust because I was looking for pitchers in the like the forty to sixty ish range, and they had an episode for exactly that. So it, was, <laughs> it was Spore and Mason, and they had Nick Pollock on. So I was like, "This is exactly what I need for yeah. FBI right now." Uh, so they they changed my mind on a few guys, and, and one interesting thing that that Nick said during that episode it was about how there were so many quality starting pitchers that emerged over the course of the year on the wire and in mixed leagues that's true every year mm-hmm. but think about Lance Lynn this time last year did anybody actually want Lance Lynn going into Texas especially right. with the old version of Arlington um, you know Frankie Montes was an AL labor reserve pick by Colton and the Wolfman last year mm-hmm. like if you start to look back at where some of this year's <clears throat> second tier and third tier starters came from they were last year's waiver pickups Max Freed a guy that I had an NL labor as a reserve a year ago. I mean, I I reap the benefits of a big chunk of what his, his breakout is. Like, if he gets up to ace level, then there's still more profit this year. But finding those guys early in the season is really important. Like, the first month of fab is critically important mm-hmm. to making sure that you're not missing something that the market as a whole may have missed. If you see guys buried outside the top 480 p it doesn't mean they're not going to have value. It just means the collective approach to valuing players is overlooking them for one reason or another. Sometimes it's playing time. Sometimes it's skills. I just think it's really interesting to see how many of these guys that we are chasing now in the mid-rounds were basically undraftable in mixed leagues this time a year ago. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's something uh, that's been important to my uh, journey as a fantasy player, like getting better. Uh, has been a better in-season strategy. Uh, I remember famously my first FAB run in labor. That's this weekend. Um, I, I spent 24 out of my $100 of FAB on Brandon Maurer. And I was just convinced that he just won a starting role in, in Seattle. He had a high spin curveball. You know, at the time I was just learning about spin rates, and I thought I was out in front of everybody, and I knew all my stuff, and you know, I was the pitching guy, and I'm going to get Brandon Maurer, and he's going to be great. And he, I think we looked at the game log, and in the first week he had two starts that tallied up about six innings together, and he gave up 14 runs. 
Yeah, you, I mean, you're going to make you mistakes. Just killed that, like, killed my season. Like, it was already killed my season. I'm so far behind. Like, I've just given up 14 runs in six innings. And the worst part was we looked and he had, like, one good start after that. I might have kept him on for another run where he gave up, like, 18 runs and three starts. <laughs> just like, oh, man, that was terrible. And so, you know, I don't know if the process was, was so terrible because I thought, you know, I, I, this is a guy who's going to start. I need a starter. You know, I, I had a, I, I needed, had a need coming out of the draft, and this guy's going to do it. And so I went big. But judging by the fact that the second bid was like five bucks, like you know, just learning how people FAB, how the people in your league FAB, how the people in your format FAB, like how much is a top draft, like how much is a top top pick, like a top FAB worth in terms of investment like you know figuring that out in TGFBI was interesting for me too because all these like big rookies that come up you know we talked about Fab of a Loser or whatever and all these big rookies come up you know I, I, I didn't think that someone would spend 50% of their uh, of their you know free agent acquisition money on uh, one player but, but I think people if do you, that yeah and if you're good at taking smaller shots I think you can afford to take a big swing here and there I think you just want to be very careful about what type of player you're going to do that with I mean mm-hmm. when it was Keston Hira a guy with a great hit to a power speed 30% of the fab budget made sense um, Austin Riley I mean a guy that brings a lot of power I, I think well, you could flawed, justify flawed people already knew his, flaws, his flaws. flaws were clear like yeah. you could see level to level as he got first promoted he struggled a bit and then after some time he kind of figured it out and mm-hmm. produced at a much higher level Brendan Rodgers I mean you're talking about a guy that could have been an everyday player in Coors if not for that shoulder injury those types of players I think are worth heavier fab bids so I think the key to being successful in fab is being able to look ahead at the schedule and saying hey you know what in a week uh, this guy's going to face the Marlins so I'm going to go ahead and pick him up now stash him on my bench use him cut him loose and just Kind of being one week ahead on two start weeks and being one week ahead on really nice matchups, you can save some money. Now, the only way that's going to work in a league that doesn't have IL spots is not stashing too many injured players. So your roster management in season... Ah, so you think I screwed up. (laughs) No, I I don't think you screwed up because you you took the chances on the guys you want. What's going to happen, though, if you hold them too long, you're going to have to make those hard decisions. That's, That's where you might screw up later. That's where I think if you have the discipline... To cut all those guys loose if they don't get the roles you want, mm-hmm. you're fine as long as you're actually going through that churn. Right. But if if we get close to the season and the Mariners say, "Oh, Hanager's going to be ready in about two weeks," and you sit there and say, "Oh, oh I man, can make it, I can make it, I can I'm make fine. it, I can make I, it, I can, I can wait two it. weeks," and you wait on him, and you've already got Paxton who you have to wait for for at least a couple uh-huh. of weeks, yeah. and I could get into some trouble. Kopech goes to the minors, like. If it's still, st- you know, with discipline though, you can get there. I think, and and you know, these types of players came at a at a massive discount. Like, I just need to find where I got uh, Paxton. I got Paxton in the 18th round. That's a really big discount. We were talking to Derek Cardi last night about that. It, it was pretty clear that he, based on the projections for Paxton, especially, thinks that the market is overcorrecting for this particular injury. Right, and you know he seems to be like fine, and but then you have the sort of accumulation of all his injuries, where you're like, this is not just this one thing. He's been injured a lot, and he doesn't give a lot of innings. But we've also talked about here on this show about how there's only going to be five or six guys that have 200 innings, and so 130 and 140 become more valuable, especially if they're good innings. So, uh, you know, I took McCullers Jr. before him. Which of these guys going to have more innings? I have no idea. 
Yeah, that's that's a really tough call. I mean, I think they're going to be pretty close for different reasons. And that was one of the things the sleeper and the bus guys were talking about. I think they were a little bit divided on how exactly they wanted to handle him. Uh, Nick was on the side that said, "Don't draft he, Andrew Pitcher." He's just trouble. Well, with McCullers, this was the point he made that I thought was pretty interesting. Is uh-huh. you know, if you're going to project him for 130 innings, tell me how those innings are going to show up. Are they going to give him some short starts and get in their bullpen? Oh, right. Are they going to skip him? Are they going to front load him? Yeah, and that was that was a fair point because he could even have like an option left. <laughs> they could option him down and just let it let it happen that way. Yeah. So I, I think it's a it's a pretty tough exercise to go through because you you have to think about managing players in season. And this came up on the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast, the Under the Radar episode. Nando threw a toss-up at Ian and I, and he said, Herman Marquez or Joe Musgrove? And for toss-ups, usually I just look at my rankings and talk about the player I ranked higher, and uh-huh. that's what I do. But that one stopped me for a second because of Marquez. And format. I said, well, it's, yeah, it's format. So if we're thinking like a 12 or a 15-team mixed league, I'm not just going to let Marquez sit in my lineup every single start. No. I'm going to try and duck the home starts. There's a major flaw with all rankings. Like, I'm trying to do dynasty rankings right now, and thank you guys for asking about it. I, I'm going to try and do it. <laughs> it's just really hard to do dynasty rankings because, like, are you winning now and you're willing to trade uh, your prospects for, for, for win now? Or are you rebuilding? You're, the rankings are going to look drastically different. And I was just thinking, I used to play uh, 12 and 15 team Yahoo leagues. And Yahoo is a lot of times, it's like daily lineups instead of weekly. And it makes sense to have, you know, a bench full of like six starting pitchers. And then Herman Marquez becomes immensely valuable. Because you can slot him in for the away games, you know, uh, and you can play around with that, and and you you don't get really penalized for it because it's daily, and you kind of you have this like you have this bench full of matchup plays. Mm-hmm. It's almost like best ball or something where you're like, I'm only using these guys when in certain situations, you know, and that's how I used to play. But now, uh, just because of the industry, like I've been gravitating towards NFBC, TGFBI, like 15 team weekly lineups. And that's a whole totally different thing where I'd rather not have, I'd rather have Musgrove because he's more likely to, to be in my lineup on, the, on any given week. I kind of think of pitchers in a couple different buckets. And one of those buckets is like a crockpot pitcher, someone you just set and forget. Mm, yeah. And I think you can have, hopefully in your, in your roster, like if you have nine active pitching spots in your league, which is pretty standard at this uh-huh. point, you'd probably want to have at least four of the starters as crockpot starters, guys that you just don't take out outside of Coors. Like that's the yeah. Gotta be. I don't. I don't. I don't know if uh, crockpots are different at elevation. I know <laughs> cooking instructions for things change as you they boil quicker as you go to Denver. So I, I don't. I haven't tried to put anything in a crockpot in Denver before. So let me know how, if that breaks down because of the Coors stuff. But I think you you only want to have a couple of spots where you have to tinker because your bench is only so big, and if you have too many. Innings cap guys, too many McCullers types, too many Lizardos, too many guys that are in and out because of innings caps and and matchups. You end up having to make more tough cuts than you need to, more than you want to anyway, and that starts to work against you too. Because then you start to fall short in innings. When you fall short in innings, you fall short in strikeouts, and you fall short in wins. And you're kind of capping yourself as like a mid pack standings person in those two categories. So then it becomes really difficult to win your league because you're already capping yourself at six or seven points in two of the five pitching categories. Yeah, yeah. And with this high variance 
pitching strategy that I had in this particular 12-teamer, Nola, Glasnow, Carrasco, uh, McCullers, Paxton, Alcantara, Kopech, Turnbull, I think my work is set out for me. Like, I don't have a lot of crockpot. I have Nola. <laughs> Carrasco's a crockpot pitcher for me. Yeah, I mean, when he's healthy. Yeah. You know, and then and Glasnow is, too, when he's healthy. You know, but yeah, there's, yeah, there yeah. Are, there's, a, there's a fair amount of injury risk. There's a fair amount of, like, Alcantara, maybe I want to bench him away from home. Um, you know, Turnbull might be a home play versus a road play, you know. So there's a fair amount of risk in this one. I have my work cut out for me. And also, uh, it was, I, you know, I wasn't even going to talk about this one. You know, clerk's voice, you know, like, I wasn't even supposed to be here today. <laughs> because I wasn't going to talk about this one. And the what the when did I schedule it for? I landed here in Florida before, like, three or four days before any anybody's coming to this first pitch thing. Because I wanted to do some interviews. I went to Philly's camp. I went to Blue Jays camp. And uh, I landed, and I was like, that night, I'm going to have no responsibilities, really. And I'm going to be on West Coast time. So let me do my first NFBC ever. You know, the $350 Rotowire Online Championship. And I'm not going to tell anybody I'm doing it. And I even considered using a pseudonym <laughs> and, like, trying to really do it incognito just to get my feet wet. And I fully expected I would make mistakes, cause even if doing TGFBI does not prepare you for this sort of thing. Plus, it's a 12-teamer, you know. I haven't done a 12-team draft in a really long time. So, you know, that uh, I expected all that to happen. But it wasn't filling. <laughs> so you were panicked. You, you, I panicked. You were pretty sure. You're like, oh, I signed up for this, and now I'm not going to get a draft in. But I so. wanted to get the draft in, so I tweeted about it. Ah, so people people smell blood. And so then somebody joined the draft, and I swear to God he was using my pitching ranks because he he was right before me, Team 8. I was Team 9. Right before me, he took Syndergaard, Woodruff, <clears throat> Eduardo Rodriguez, Matthew Boyd, uh, Yanni Chirinos, like he was like reading my ranks, dude. I was so many times I was mad at him. It was crazy. Um, so anyway, what were you gonna use for your name? Like, how are you gonna Mason Saunders yourself? Like, what's your I don't, oh, what's your alias? Yeah. <laughs> Which is the most Madison Bumgarner uh, thing possible? Like, that's that's more to his core than the dirt bike accident. Well, I don't need to tell. I I have a I have another last name which I don't I don't really want to tell people. Yeah, don't uh, tell people that. But I can tell you about my middle name that I might have used as my first name, uh, which is Kama, which is interesting because K A M A from the Kama Sutra, sex is my middle name. <laughs> and to make this even more awkward, I once asked my mom, who gave me a copy of the Kama Sutra, when I was in middle school, I said. Mom, is this book all about sex? And she's like, yeah, you know, positions and stuff. And I was like, God, Mom, is my middle name sex? And she goes, no, it's the fulfillment of all desires. And I'm like, that's so weird, Mom. That is so weird. That is so weird. We got to have your mom on the pod sometime. Yeah. Oh, no, Mom, I love you. I'm not, I don't think you're, I mean, yes, you're weird. I'm weird. Weird is good. So if you, if you listen that far, don't feel, don't feel, it's a great, it's a great name. I love my name. Don't worry about it. We're in the 40th minute. I don't <laughs> think the mom listen. makes it no, quite not, this does, not, not always thinks you're right. She kind of listens to the beginning to see how we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing well, Mom. <laughs> 
I know like, she she got on you for not asking me, so I, I, I just stopped <laughs> yeah, oh, asking you right. a while back. <laughs> I very rarely ask how you're doing on the pod anymore for that yeah. reason. Wow. So okay, that that I didn't even know that about you. So mm. I'm I'm a little bit uh, on my back foot right now. I'm a little surprised. That was that was that used to be a, a, like a line for me. I use it as a line sometimes. I'm I don't know. Should I be proud of that or not proud of that? I don't know. It yeah. worked a couple times. So. You're owning up to it either way. So, there you go. Wow. All right. Yeah. So, hmm. have we have we look at our uh, topics? Have we done all our topics? Yeah. Let's go back to the outline. <laughs> uh, let's let's that's gather like a, that's ourselves. Like a fart. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we kind of did. Like the differences okay. between twelves and fifteens is something I talked about with Vlad Sedler a couple weeks ago. And he's done really well in a lot of formats, but he crushes the 12s. Really? And that was the the main takeaway I had in that conversation was just that he has the discipline to move away from players and really value volume within a week. Weekly projections weekly and projections. weekly schedules yeah. are really important. Like my favorite tool that I, I, I probably used it for a long time because I help like populate data for it. Rotowire does the projected starters grid. That's what they've always called it. And you can look at who's going where, which pitchers are pitching where, for up to about 14 days at a time. Nice. So you can look at how many team games there are. You can look at lefty-righty and and see different things like that. Uh, So I I find that really helpful for looking down the road at who projects to have a two-star week, teams that project to have maybe six or seven games when other teams might have five. I think being aware of that and really making that part of your routine when you're picking up players is a key way to get an edge really in any format like knowing what's coming schedule wise is going to open up a lot of interesting waiver plays that you probably wouldn't have thought about otherwise just based on skills alone yeah and i thought i that that actually factored into the sandy alcantara pick for me because i identified the um, phillies marlins series in that short week the four four day week uh, that starts the season as a place that i just wanted to get a pitcher you know, I I, I I don't think that the Phillies are a bad lineup, but it's just such a boost, I think, to even with the fences coming in in Florida, I still think it's going to be at least St. Louis levels, you know, if not San Francisco level. It's going to be, it's going to depress the offense. And, you know, most of those guys have good splits. I mean, I know Yamamoto didn't, but you can just assume that they're going to pitch a little bit better in it's A, it's home, and B, it's that park. So... Um, I think that's a that's a kind of a good edge to get. If I drop Alcantara after that because I don't like his next matchup, again, I'm, I'm going to be looking at that sort of, or maybe trying to be more proactive when it comes to thinking about matchups and, and getting ahead of that. But it is interesting if you get if you think you know about matchups, like you know, teams are uh, are are changing, you know. And so just because a team had a bad lineup last year, I, especially the people who get really into it are like, oh, you know, the Padres are bad against lefties last year. Well, is it the same rosters, the same people? Were they bad against lefties because, you know, Tatis was hurt a lot? You know, <laughs> like, is he going to be healthy in the first? You know, like, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the, there are a lot of uh, – you can get too deep into it. Like, you know, I think that park and temperature are, are a good place to start. And if you get beyond that, like, especially, like, you know, people talk about, like, Oh, this team is good against sliders. Mm. I don't think going that granular makes sense. Like a pitch type, because your slider and my slider are not the same. Yeah, like the they, hitters tell me that they're, they're, they're just not the same. Yeah, 
Like, is Andrew Miller's pitching right now? Is like, like, does Andrew Miller and Masahiro Tanaka's you know slide, or do they have anything to do with any each other? Like, they're like exact opposites. You know, it's righty lefty. It's sweeping. It's it's more like a small baby hook from Tanaka. You know what I mean? Like, they're not at all the same thing. So. Yeah, just saying a team is good against batting against sliders, I don't think is very useful. But but looking at the schedule, looking at when you know two starts happen, especially two starts in good parks, like that is something that I plan to do heavily with this roster, considering how much injury risk there's already on it. Considering what you're saying about you know making sure I get the IP. So we, we'll, I think in the future, we'll, you know, I didn't want to talk about too much of labor strategy. Hi, hi, Glenn and, and hi, Rick. I didn't want to. Um, uh, give away my secrets before the labor draft, and uh, you're drafting tonight. And I think we're gonna maybe sit in, sit in on each other's drafts and and offer any sort of uh, things that we spot in the room. Um, uh, and so once we get that done, we can also talk about our auction strategies with uh, with concrete examples. So it won't be so much like I'm hoping to do this or I'd like to do this. It'll be I did this. And maybe we can even say, well, Derek Cardi did this. And, yeah. You know, get inside and, the head of some of the other strategies yeah. that we didn't use Colton maybe the because they foiled this. us. You know, yeah. So um, I, I'm definitely considering lots of different things. And I one thing that I did do, and if you have an auction this weekend, I would, I would suggest you do this, and this without giving much away, is what I call decision trees or just like – you know, uh, create, uh, pick a star that you like, you know, and then create a roster off of that star. Just pretend like it's almost like a mock. Just pretend like you're filling in your roster after that. And you'll see the different certain player groups come to the fore. Like when you start with some steals with your guy, then you can, you don't have to take the steals only guy and you kind of have different people in different places. You might gravitate towards the same players and that tells you something too, where you're like, oh, no matter what different decision tree I did, I kind of end up with these guys a lot. So I guess I like them and maybe I should consider them kind of targets, but not something that I'm going to be in love with and have to get. That I don't right. like that. But but doing those decision trees and also on the pitching side, what I did was I'm going to do a, a, a stars lineup, stars and scrubs. I'm going to do a no, no scrubs lineup. I'm going to do a no stars lineup and just see what kind of different pitchers I get in each of these approaches. Uh, and that gives you a good idea. And you also have three or four different ideas when you get in the draft. So if, if one kind of falls away, you, you can just kind of go to one of the other plans and kind of look at the different groups of players. I think that applies to drafts and auctions, really. Because yeah. we talked earlier about being on end or being in the middle. and You can look at what players are traditionally available on the ends and the middles. Yeah. yeah, so you can kind of set yourself up. But then if runs break against you, you have thought about what you're going to do. Oh, what is my plan if the top if 10 closers aren't there? Yeah, right. if, I, if I don't have Hira, if yeah. I don't have... I'm, I'm planning on drafting Trey Turner at 7 in the first round. But if he's not there and I end up taking someone who runs less or I take a pitcher in that spot... Where am I, I going to get, get the bag. bags I want, right? Yeah, if I'm yeah. expecting 40 bags from Turner and I don't take him in the first round, there aren't a lot of 40 steal guys, so where am I going to find those 40 steals? What types of players am I going to target in the early rounds? Like Thinking through those things in advance will absolutely pay off over the course of a draft or an auction, so definitely like a cross-format sort of thing. Uh, I think we should close things out with a uh, beer of the week. Oh, that's right. Beer, I should say a beer of the month. We got the new beer of the month. Yeah, that, that, that's not our best sound. <laughs> I'm still used to beer of the week. Uh, the beer of the month is working out a lot better for us. 
You did something very local uh, last night. You were yeah, I, I did a little uh, a little hop. I did Green Bench here in, in St. Pete. Uh, actually, I just want to give a little shout out to Eric Hamann, uh, who was gracious enough. He used to be a rotographs rider for me. He's been a D-Rays Bay rider. And uh, he is a professional shuffleboard player. That's pretty awesome. And, like, flies around and has, like, a, like a custom four-part shuffleboard stick that he can, like, fly with and shit. Oh, and poop. Um, and so much better. Uh, <laughs> and he showed me around his shuffleboard club, which is just amazing. Downtown St. Pete, there's there's like there's like a lake out in front of it, and there's these you know these low hanging trees. I should know what they are. I used to live in the south, but you know those those low hanging trees that give you that southern feel. And he's showing me his shuffleboard. We play a little bit. He's giving me pointers on like strategy and stuff. So that was great. So after that, I went to Green Bench, uh, and I went to Cycle after that, and. My two beers are from those two places. From Cycle, I had... I'm going to do a co-beer of the month on this one. Cycle, I had hazelnut cream and sugar, uh, which was a... uh, uh, Just like a like a milk stout basically, obviously, and you can hear it in the name. But I just wanted to give a shout out to hazelnuts because I love them. I love hazelnuts. Like marzipan and... uh, I mean, is that a thing that people know about marzipan? If they were born in the 50s, yeah. <laughs> or they have German parents, you yeah. know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so marzipan is just like a hazelnut paste uh, that, that people in, in Europe put into, into chocolate. It's just, I just love it. Um, I think Nutella. Mm-hmm. Has 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 uh, if, you, if you had Nutella, that's the taste I'm talking about. And it just it was so great because it just tasted. Uh, it was just like a dessert in a glass, and it wasn't even that strong. It was like eight percent, and I just I love that beer. But I think. If I had to rank the two breweries, I might rank Green Branch ahead because I had a mixed firm saison there. And what a mixed firm saison is, basically they do some fermentation um, in steel, I think, or in, in, in normal vats. And that gives you kind of the regular saison start. Uh, and then they put it in what's called a further, further, further. They got those funk factory. And it's just a big, it's a big wooden vat. And you don't get a ton of wood like a barrel age because the barrel age uh, stouts are in smaller, uh, in like uh, whiskey, you know, a lot of times whiskey barrels. Yeah. So they're in smaller barrels. So you get a lot more contact with the wood uh, per average inch of you, you beer want or whatever. Yeah, you and then you get a lot that of that way. oak flavor and stuff, the wood flavor. You don't get as much of that wood flavor in these mixed firm saisons, but you get a little bit. And what you do get is like a real thick saison that's tart. And uh, they put some hops in at the end, so you kind of get a little bit of the hoppy sour thing, but without it being super sour. It's um, and it's almost like a hazy IPA too, because it's kind of thick, and uh, it was just so good. I mean, it's all the right flavors and, and the great mouthfeel. Uh, that was called Stead, I think. Uh, Stead was the beer. Also had a Turbid Seven from them. Um, so Green Bench really impressed me. Cycled it too. Both of those are top shelf. Uh, now on my list, probably of sort of the top twenty or so breweries I've ever been to. Like I think they were that good. They were really really good. But uh, Green Bench was a little bit ahead. I wanted to shout out Cigar City because I remember going to the Arizona Fall League for First Pitch Arizona about ten years ago, and at the time craft beer hadn't blown up yet. And Cigar City was some of the best stuff around. It's still very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some last night. Gaibara, is that the proper yeah, pronunciation? Right, one, of the, right. one of the pale ales. Hialai was the first one I ever had. Although I'm not one to ask for pronunciation. I'll just have to tell you that. <laughs> and Maduro is the, the brown ale. Uh, so I've had a bunch of their beers over the years because they become easier. They're, they're pretty widely distributed now. 
And I just wanted to bring them up because last night when I landed in Tampa, I uh, walked up the runway. First thing I saw were the tap handles at the bar in the terminal, and it was Bud, Bud Light, Stella, maybe, and then Hialeah. And I thought, okay, that's okay. This is much better. Like yeah. this is, we've reached the point where that's become so mainstream. On, I have to admit, it's getting better. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's people out there that would say, oh, well, Hialeah is easy to get now, so it's not as special. They it's like, signed a deal, they bought out, whatever, whatever. It's still good beer. Yeah, it's still great beer. And if you go to the place on Spruce Street, as I did as I got off the plane, <laughs> just literally like, just going right over there, uh, they have really good barrel-aged stuff. I don't think that that goes out as much. I don't love chili and cinnamon in my stout, so Hunapu is not actually my favorite. But they had like a, a, a pistachio vanilla stout. And I was like, this is amazing. What is this? I've never had these tastes. Yeah, that's a nice combination of yeah. adjuncts. So, uh, yeah, I would check I would check them out. They're worth it still. Don't let people tell you that like they've fallen off 100% because they're big or whatever. They're, they're still doing fun things. And a lot of places like these are doing fun things on their in their tap rooms that you don't see in in their Safeway, in your in your grocery store, you know, even if you see Highlight in your grocery store. Yeah, don't uh, that's going to be just a, a marker I think of this era of craft beer where you're going to see things that you used to be rare that become a lot less rare you've talked about pliny like it's your pliny's gonna start showing up you're gonna start seeing it they doubled they double their production don't start rating pliny lower if it tastes the same as it used to just because you can find it easier now don't be a jerk like if it's it's still great it's still great score it the same way yeah rates and barrels t-shirt don't be a jerk oh that'd be a great (laughs) t-shirt We need to get some t-shirts going. Yeah. Uh, feel free to use the uh, email. Uh, what is the email again? Ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com if you want to get us that way. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can Give find us some me. t-shirt ideas. Yeah. Send, send your t-shirt ideas at Derek Van Riper on Twitter. you got to draw them yourself using paint. Microsoft Paint, hopefully. Yeah. Those will be the show, best submissions. Show me what I'm a stuffist would look like on a T-shirt. Yes, and uh, maybe we'll start making some T-shirts if we get some good submissions. Uh, we have a couple other fantasy pods we've been running this season at The Athletic. Check those out as well. Fantasy Baseball in 15 every weekday morning and The Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast. A lot of team shows picking up next week, too. So if you're a fan of a team and want to hear some great talk about that particular team, got about 15 shows, I believe, getting underway to begin next week. So... It'll be a great week. Thanks uh, for listening to Rates and Barrels. We are back with you next week, hopefully with amazing labor titles. Yeah, that was my line. Thanks for listening. <laughs>